I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. And I know this is going to be a very easy interview to do because I'm with one of the great talkers of the game. It's Mr. Dominic Dale. Dom, thanks very much for joining us on pleasure, the podcast. Pleasure to do the podcast with you, Michael. Let's get to the big question first of all, Dom. How Welsh are you? Um, not very. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Coventry in 1971 and my father was made redundant for the fifth time under the uh, Margaret Thatcher regime and decided to sell the property in Browns Lane in Coventry, which was by the Jaguar factory where I grew up, and moved us to Wales in about 1982-83, during that dreadful winter when he had 12 feet snowdrifts. And uh, so I grew up there from about the age of 11 or 12, something like that. And um, I went to a sort of an English school but Welsh was the main spoken language where I lived it was very rural so I picked up a lot of Welsh and um, I can understand probably 70% of the Welsh I hear and can speak probably 30% of it. Did um, you and Matthew Stevens ever have a chat in Welsh? I know he's fluent. I don't remember that no um, I've I've actually I was in a snooker club in Carmarthen in West Wales when he gave an interview in Welsh. For the, that's his hometown of course. That's right and I worked there in the police headquarters around the corner from where he lived and I used to practice with him when he was 14 or 15. I could see the potential in him then but uh, I don't think I've ever conversed with Matthew in Welsh, no. What were you doing in the police force? Because you've mentioned this before that you were working there at an early age. Yeah, I left school at the age of uh, 16, something like that and I went on a youth training scheme, a YTS that were very popular in those days and I spent uh, first of all a year in the police, uh, sorry, in, in a firm of solicitors in Carmarthen called Ingoy Thompson King, they're still going. And then um, for the second year, I decided to change work placements and try the police headquarters, Dovey Powers Police Headquarters. And I was in the police operations room, um, or the ACPO, the Assistant Chief Police Officer Suite, basically. And I was on the police radios and uh, on the switchboard, so I, ha- I used to answer the phone in Welsh and English. And uh, I really enjoyed that, and I would have had a career ahead of me in the police force, probably, I was a civilian at the time, I was only sort of 18 or 19 then, um, had the World Professional Snooker Association at the time, the WPBSA, not decided to make the game go open, whereby you could just pay money and be a professional. I was run up in the World Amateur Championships at the time, and I would uh, I had no intention of being a professional snooker player, funnily enough. I would have had a great career in the police, had the game not gone, gone open, and uh, and a local businessman not wanted to sponsor me. It's a good thing, isn't it, actually? Because back in the day when snooker first became a mainstream television sport, most of the players had had other jobs. Nowadays, they tend to have only played snooker for their whole lives. So even if it was only for a short time, good experience to have tasted a bit of the real world, as it were, before you came on the circuit. Absolutely. It's a little bit of a criticism of mine you know, about in the modern professional snooker player that, for me, they spend a lot of time on mobile phones and, you know, and all this Instagram and social media and they don't better themselves and, and, and as you say I mean a lot of them have flunked school and, and spent their you know teenage years a lot of it uh, in a snooker club learning uh, the art of snooker and they've got nothing really to fall back on or not so much to fall back on if things don't work out for them. So as we said you weren't originally from Wales but you've always represented Wales in various international competitions one of which you mentioned there the World Amateur Championship which was pretty much exactly 30 years ago. Now at that time that was a massive massive title to win still pretty big now of course and it gets you on the tour you so nearly won it. I did I lost in the final to a tie player Nopadon Nopachorn but um my memories of that was I was playing above myself. I was playing at a level I'd never managed to achieve before. I went there as a Welsh amateur snooker champion. And I went where with my Welsh compatriot, um, David Bell, who knocked out Ronnie um, from 4-2 down, 1-5-4, and I think the last 16. And and Ronnie was a massive favourite to win that. Yes, he was. He was only about 16 at the time. Um, and I, I knew Ronnie a little bit from the pro-am scene. But it was the first time I sort of spent a lot of time with him in the same hotel, the Menam Hotel it was in Thailand. 
And um, yeah, David Bell was 4-2 down and beaten 5-4 in the last 16. Nopadon beat him, I think, in the quarters. And um, Nopadon got through to the final. I got through to the final. I was playing snooker I'd never played before. I beat um, a really handy Thailand player called Prapat Chaitanasakun or Rom Sarinas, who's uh, known. You're just showing off now. I try Say, to. Saying the real name. I know. <laughs> um, and uh, I beat him 5-1. And I, that was the best match I'd ever played in my life at the time because I practised with him in the snooker club before the event began and he hammered me. He was hammering everybody. He was a fantastic player but couldn't afford to be a professional or attempt to be a professional player and join the ranks. Um, and that was the case back then. A lot of the Thai players were great players but just couldn't afford to come over to the UK and attempt to be a professional player and uh, he could have been one. So, you know, I, although I lost in the final 11-9, I, I played snooker. I'd never played you know, the, the standard of in my life before and uh, so I, had, you know, I was delighted even though I'd lost. We'll come to the 1997 Grand Prix in a moment but first I'd like to ask you about the years leading up to that because it was a bit out of the blue when you won that title you were ranked 54 in the world so what had happened in those years did you feel you were showing your true self in matches or did you feel the best was still to come? I didn't really think anything. I was just, you had to play so many matches and so many competitions in those days, particularly in the first couple of years that the game had gone open. I think there were 900 odd pros or something like that. And you just got on with tournament after tournament, playing match after match and just trying to be as fresh as you could be for them. And the whole season would come and go in a flash and um, you just had to see how you got on. I mean, sometimes I'd be playing a player that beat me 5-0 and then the next day I'd play me in another tournament and I'd beat them 5-0. It happened with Roger Garrett and somebody else, I can't think who it was. That's the sort of thing that would happen there. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd never been beyond, I don't know, last 16 or anything like that and um, whilst I was ranked 54. But, you know, in five seasons as a pro, I did get myself from rank, you know, blah, 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 dot, yeah, yeah. you know, on the sort of third page, fourth paragraph sort of thing, to, you know, being a top 64 player, which really helped as a seeded player. I'd have far fewer matches to play. And it's much easier then. Um, I could space the tournaments out better and practice and prepare for each uh, event as I came along. And... Um, I had a good temperament. I think most players do at an early age. And I kept winning matches. I remember beating uh, Andy Hicks. And then I had to play Dave Harold. I think, maybe in the quarters or the last 16. And I was actually 4-3 behind and needed two snookers and managed to get them and win and win the deciding frame on the pink. So I was very fortunate to, to actually um, manage to, to win the title at all. Well, sometimes, particularly in those days, actually, if you had a surprise winner of a tournament you felt they'd had a little bit of a look of the draw and maybe they hadn't yeah. beaten the best players. Now, you were the complete opposite because along the way you beat Steve Davis, which I think was live in Grandstand. It was on indeed. On a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. You beat Jimmy White, who was still a very good player in at the time. In the semis, yeah. So then you're in the final against John Higgins, who was just about to become the very best player in the world. In fact, he ended that season as world number one and world champion. But you got off to a flyer against him. He then comes charging back at you. You really had to show good temperament and composure to finish it off in those circumstances. Yeah, a, a couple of things I'll mention about the final. I was 4-0 up on John, who had the most wretched run of the ball you could ever imagine. And nothing was going right. I, I think my highest break in the first four frames was something like 47. Um, and I was 4-0 up on him. And John could just never recover that deficit. I kept hanging on. Had a bit of luck along the way, I have to say. John was trying his level best to catch me up. But I ended up 5-3 uh, ahead going into the evening session. And I remember walking out for the evening session and in the front row, it was all different. You had uh, extra monitors where the, um, the, the snooker lights were, for, uh, which weren't there in the afternoon session. It was a completely different atmosphere. In the front row, you had all kinds of dignitaries. You had Rex Williams, John Paulman, Terry Griffiths, um, people from um, 
Imperial Tobacco, I think. They weren't sponsoring it at the time, but they were part of the snooker scene. Um, Sir Geoffrey Archer, who was our he president. Was president he was time, our president, yeah. in, indeed so. And uh, I walked out there and I looked at all these people. I thought, goodness me, I've got to play in front of this lot. And um, amazingly, you don't know how you're going to cope with that. You just, in the end, what happens, the will to win, the title takes over and you don't even notice who's watching you. I remember actually Phil Taylor was in the audience, Buster Merrifield. Uncle Albert in, in, in Only Fools and Horses was, was Were there, there any members of the general public there? It sounds like it was just an audience of celebrities. I've got a very selective yeah. memory. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. were. I even met Sebastian Coe, would you believe? Yeah, it was an extraordinary event. Um, and, of course, I won it from nowhere. It was not as though I'd been in previous semi-finals or quarter-finals. So all of a sudden I was a title winner. Everybody was watching me and I felt very pressured for actually quite a few seasons. I felt like a name or I felt as though people were watching me when it probably wasn't the case and I've put pressure on myself for years to come So do you feel maybe obviously you're in the game to win titles and if you can do that that's the main thing but do you feel in a sense it maybe stopped your progress for the years after that? It's possible I didn't really feel that I belonged in that sort of elite category at all as a title winner it had been better for me had I been to the odd quarter final semi-final and made a slower slower progression to winning a title but to win it out of nowhere Oh, it, but it you was must tough. look back now, Dom, and think that was the wrong way to think because you'd won it, as I say, beating several of the best players in the world along the way. It wasn't as if you'd been lucky to win it. No, you're absolutely right. Um, looking back, I, mean, I was only 25 at the time, but I'd been a professional for five years. I hadn't played that many top 16 players, really. Um, it's different now. I mean, you can play in anything, and if you're a low-ranked player, you probably will be playing a top 16 player first round, so it's a completely different thing now. But um, And you get a lot of experience um, for, through doing that, which I hadn't had really at the time. Yeah, I mean, I should have had the, the, the champion's attitude of, you know, I, I'm right, I've won the first one, I want to win the next one now. But it wasn't like, I was completely opposite. I was very insular. I, I became an extrovert. I wasn't at the time, far from it. And um, I was very self-conscious of myself as a person and as a player. And when I played television matches, I wasn't some demophobic. I, you know, I'm not sort of afraid of uh, the cameras and the audience watching me, but I didn't feel secure in that environment because I hadn't had enough experience of it. Now, it couldn't be more the opposite. I'd love to go out there in front of a massive audience and TV cameras. I love that now, but that wasn't the case back then. You did back it up eventually albeit that it was 10 years later, you won another ranking event, the Shanghai Masters. The final was the complete opposite this time because it was against Ryan Day. Now, in this one, it was he who built the substantial lead, but then you just completely overturned him from 6-2 down. You won eight frames in a row. You had a 1-4-3 along the way. Was it a case that Ryan maybe struggled to get over the line or was it that you started to play really well, maybe relax a bit? Perhaps a bit of both? I'd actually practiced with Ryan the day before uh, we went out to Shanghai. And I remember I was, um, oh, what was I? I was 6-3 down on the practice table to him. And um, I think I was 8-6 down on the practice table and beat him 9-8 in practice. And it mm. must have been in the back of his mind. Um, really? You think, fi- you think a practice session, I mean, you would know better because you were a professional player, but you think a practice session could have that kind of impact in on the, the player's psychology? Yeah, in the period from the afternoon session ending when he had a 6-2 lead and then a 6-3 lead, I won the last frame with a 94 clearance, had a chance to beat um, Ian McCulloch's 1-3-3 break on the final frame of the afternoon session and I missed a um, penultimate red or something. But that 94 break enabled me to reduce the deficit to three frames from 6-2 to 6-3 going into the evening session. That is those two or three hours of when Ryan could well have thought about that last practice session because I did virtually exactly the same thing to him. And um, I, I was 
surprised that early early on in the evening session, Ryan seemed very nervous. I played a really good safety shot, a killer safety shot, put him in a lot of trouble. But he's tried to play a thin edge on a red and hit hit the wrong red or something, left me right in, and I made a one four three first frame, and uh, that settled me right down. The, I remember conditions were very tricky. It was very humid. The table's playing very slowly. Um, the cushions are very slow, and uh, the balls played rather heavily. You couldn't screw back very easily. Very different conditions. Um, so it's a bit like course management in golf. You just have to play the right shot for those conditions. And um, I managed it. Ryan, I don't think, amassed more than 70 or 80 points in the whole of the evening session. He really, really, really struggled against me. It really surprised me. And as a result, you became the first ever winner of what's gone on to become a very famous tournament, which hopefully will be back on the circuit soon. Yeah. You never made the top 16, Dom. You're the only player to have won two ranking events and never be in the top 16. Why was that? I wasn't consistent enough. Um, both the uh, ranking events I won were season openers, the first tournaments of both seasons. And I could never keep that form going. Um, I was always inconsistent, always have been pretty much every season I've played because I just never thought I was good enough. And as soon as I come up against better players, I'll just, if I put in a really good performance to beat somebody, it was sort of, rather than the norm, it was the decided exception. I wouldn't put in that performance very often. And my average form was that of a top 32, top 64 player, which is where I was ranked. And um, it was only the fact I've managed to win the season opening tournaments that catapulted me up the rankings, gave me a chance to get in the 16. Um, so maybe the enormity of getting into the top 16 when it became a possibility perhaps scared you a bit? Being in the 16 never bothered me. Um, when you're a professional sportsman, you just want to win matches. You're not cared about numbers, ranking points. That's for the you know the people in their ivory towers to construct these sort of ranking systems and do what they do, you know, to create something for the, for the public and the media. Right? That's for a snooker player doesn't matter except if you are in the top 16 especially then you've been in invitational events of which were quite a few very lucrative ones of course the masters being the most prestigious and um of course that was the the carrot really for, for being in the 16 um it never bothered me um the fact that i've never been a top 16 player what does that really mean uh, you're in the game's elite but according to who not really the player himself possibly I don't know. That's my take on it. it may, other players might think, what on earth am I on about here? But to me, it's just a number. If the ranking system back in the day was um, the, the way it is now, um, I'd have been in the 16 on many occasions. I was provisioning the 16 on a number of occasions. Because winning a tournament has a much greater impact now on the rankings. Yeah. And back in those days, your ranking didn't come into effect until after the World Championships. And the highest I ever was in the rankings after World Championships was 19. I was never in the 16. But during the season, I was in there many times. And on the cutoffs that we have now, I'd have been in the 16 uh, many, many times. But it wasn't, it wasn't the case back then. We mentioned Matthew Stevens there, and he was on mm. here just a few weeks ago. And he had fond memories of the 1999 Nations Cup yeah. that uh, you all won together for Wales, uh, the two of you, Mark Williams, Darren Morgan. Four very different personalities, but you came together really well for what I think was probably a very special week for you. It really was. Um, I have to say, I mean, I can't remember Darren's performances, but Mark and Matthew were outstanding. And I I think I won, um, I don't know, I think I played about nine matches and won one or two frames. I was really strong. I just didn't feel comfortable in the sort of company I was keeping. You had every country's best player, but Wales didn't have that many players. And and I probably, myself and Darren were certainly far behind um, Mark and Matthew. 
Um, but that's the nature uh, of an event like that, isn't it? That it the top is. players win most of the frames and then the other guys chip in with a frame here and there and that's yeah. how you get it done. I remember having, a, a, I think we were in a, an Indian restaurant or something and, and Morel was, uh, Matthew's father, mm. bless him, was with us. And he, he, I felt, I think I must have said something to him along those lines and he, he tried to reassure me, look, you're part of a team uh, and what have you and, um, you know, don't feel bad that, you know, you haven't won as many frames as you'd like to have won. I mean, it's very, very tough. I did a lot better in the next uh, the, the, the year after I think it was when we lost in the final to to England. We were heavily behind and um, I won a crucial match. Um, this was played against Jimmy actually in the Hexagon in, in Reading, and uh, there was a terrific atmosphere there. There was a lot of pressure on me. My goodness, I felt the pressure like never before, and uh, I managed to cope with it very well. Then I certainly held my end up, but I was a captain, so I was probably giving myself the easier matches on paper. <laughs> How did you get to be captain then the next year? Oh, I was delegated as that. Okay. Uh, yeah, Matthew and Mark didn't want to be captain. Uh, right. Darren um, didn't want to be, so it was, I was chosen as captain. It was, I thought it was an honour. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Let's talk about the World Championship because you've had some great times at the Crucible. You won a match there once by 13 frames to one against David Gray, oh, who just beat No Sullivan a few days earlier. And you went on to reach the quarterfinals that year. But I'd like to talk to you more about the other World Quarterfinal you got to, which was 14 years later. And you almost pulled off one of the great Crucible recoveries against Barry Hawkins. How did you manage to turn it round from 11-5 down to actually going in front in the match? Yeah, I remember that. I'm... My safety was pretty good, but Barry kept knocking in great long pot after great long pot and established this incredible lead. I think I, I should have ended the session a couple of frames closer to him than I was because I had a, I was on a break in the final frame of the session the, the day before and, and I had a huge kick and uh, Barry cleared up from it. Um, I think I was 11-5 uh, down, wasn't I, going into the, the, the final day and... Uh, Barry struggled. I gave him plenty of opportunities to extend the lead and win the match. He only needed two frames. And he kept making mistakes, and I got back into it. And uh, I won the first four frames. I knew I had to. That's the only way back for me to win all four frames of the first mini-session um, to reduce the deficit from, to 11-9. And I bumped into Willie Thorne on the way to the dressing room, and he says, well played, keep it going, son. He didn't He didn't want to sort of elaborate or, or speak to me about the match. So just, you know, welcome, encouragement. But he didn't want to sort of get into my head or anything like that. Um, it was brilliant. And yes, I just carried on after the interval and Barry struggled, but he played two outstanding frames to win. Well, you didn't score a point in the last two frames. No, Did you have chances? I had one half chance to the right-hand centre pocket and I missed it. Uh, the way Barry was playing at the time, I didn't think that was going to be a problem. I didn't leave him in from it. I played two, a couple of safety shots that landed near the bolt line, didn't find the bolt cushion. And Barry potted two great balls and made two frame-winning breaks. He didn't miss a pot in two frames. Chalk and cheese from what had gone on before. Agonising to miss out on the one-table stage, having gone so close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a standing ovation at the end. It was very nice. It was a wonderful atmosphere. And uh, the audience, I'm sure, loved the match. And, and I did too. I mean, you're going to be philosophical after being you know, 11-5 behind you can't win that match the other guy can only lose it from there really you would have played Ronnie O'Sullivan in the semi-final not someone you had a great record against for many years he beat you the first nine times and usually it was quite comfortable yeah so fantastic then that quite late on in your career a couple of seasons ago you finally got a win over him yeah I remember going to that competition in China thinking that well first of all Ronnie doesn't really like traveling uh, on long flights um, to places like China Australia wherever it would be so I thought to myself, right, I've definitely got a chance of beating him here. I knew I had. 
So I practiced well, prepared well for the match. But I knew the problem I always had with Ronnie O'Sullivan was I was playing the man and not, you know, and, and, and I was playing the player and not, and not getting on with my own game and concentrating yeah. on what I do. And that was the reason I was getting some heavy beatings from Ronnie because I was just, I wouldn't say I was giving him too much respect, but he was the only player um, that I found a little intimidating because he's not like a, a sort of a John Higgins player who can sort of strangle you slowly, but you know, Ronnie can just knock you flat in no time. And that's always intimidating. If you don't start well against somebody like him, the thing is, when you play the top players, you must take the game to them. You must be attacking, because if you show them too too much respect, they'll they'll pick up on that immediately and just wipe the floor with you. So I did take my shots on against Ronnie, and I did just play my own game. It was a long time, I think, before I played him. Um, I played him in, the, in China, as you say, and it was, I think it was a long time before that since our previous encounter. So I was able to sort of put those out my out my mind and just focus on that match. And somehow, yeah, I did manage to win. And then Fergal beat me, but he played great. Well, it often happens that way, doesn't it? You yeah. get the big win and then you lose a match that you might have been expected to win. Yeah. We're going to come to the quick fire round now, Dom. This is just where I throw a few things at you, a few subjects, and you just say whatever comes into your head. Okay? Right, okay. Favourite song? Oh, crikey. Favourite song, favourite song. It's going to be a... Roy Orbison's song, and it will be. Oh, crikey. Forgive my pausing here. That's okay. I want. Falling. Falling. Falling, Roy Orbison. Okay. It expresses his vocal range. He was a, he was a tenor vocal range. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Great singer. Great Wonderful singer. singer. Yeah. Best movie you've ever seen? My favourite movie, that's an easy one. Get Carter. Okay. Best place you've been to in the world? I love Shanghai. It's wonderful. Not surprised. Yeah. One thing you'd like to change about the professional game and the circuit? The rules. Sorry, no. Um, (laughs) One thing I'd like to change about the game, I'd love to go back to the ranking system that we used to have before the prize money system was introduced, whereby the top 16 player at venues, the top 32 were around behind. It seemed fair. You had incentives to try and get yourself in the 32 and the 16. Um, I've spoken to many, many players who prefer that system. Um, I wish a shootout wasn't a ranking event uh, because you don't play by the official rules of the game of snooker, so it's not a snooker ranking event. I don't know what it is. It's a novelty. One match you'd like to have over again? Ooh, that's a good one. One match I'd like to have over again? Crikey. There have been so many where I've lost it because just I wasn't mentally right. Um... Mm, one match I'd like to have over again. I remember losing one. I think it was early, very early on in my career. I was 9-4 up on Gerard Green in the World Championship qualifiers and lost 10-9. I'd like to have that one over again. From the 28th of February to the 6th of March, Snooker's top stars head to the ICC in Newport to do battle at the Bet Victor Welsh Open. For a limited time only, tickets are available from just £10. Don't miss out. Book now. Head to wst.tv forward slash tickets. You're 50 now, Don, so congratulations. Yes, quinquagenarian. Yeah, so you've reached that milestone now. So how do you see it now? How much longer do you see yourself going on? I don't know whether I'm going to stay in the top 64 in the world. Um, I had a good UK championships. And um, so that's sort of shunted me up the rankings a little bit. I don't know. If I stay in the top 64, I have a tricky decision to make because, unfortunately for me, the residual effects of the coronavirus lockdowns have meant that my snooker club opens at midday now. I'm very 
I'm struggling very much to get good quality practice and it's so busy there the whole time I'm there. There are many distractions. I'm struggling to get my game up to scratch. Could you find somewhere else to practice? Not really. I wouldn't like to as well. Paul Strafford, the club owner, the match play in Stroud where I play, it's been fantastic to me, that you know, Paul and Anne, and um, I'm so grateful for some for allowing me to practice there free of charge. And I'm basically in a snooker club, which is better for me in a way. I've got things going on around me. But as I've got older in life, I don't know, I've got this, I don't know whether I'm being a bit sort of above my station or uh, but you've got this sort of supercilious attitude. I don't know what it is. I need to sort my head out. I'm probably in a comfort zone. And these distractions that didn't used to bother me anyway, because from 10 to 1 when the club used to open, I'd have the same distractions. So why is it bothering me now when it didn't before? So I need to sort my head out, really. If I do stay in the top 64 after, after the World Championships, um, I'll have a decision to make whether I do want to carry on or whether I want to retire, because I love um, doing all the TV and commentary work that mm. I do, and I have done for 20-odd years. And I want to go into that full-time, definitely. Um, I don't know how I'm going to feel at the end of the season, whether I do want to call it a day. That will have, I'll have completed 30 years as a professional. You're a long time retired, though, Dom. That's the thing. You know, you have plenty of years to do all the TV and all the rest of it. Why not keep playing as long as you can? I think would be most people's attitude. That You're right, actually, Michael. Yeah, I mean, if I do stay in the world's top 64 at the end of the season... I don't want to look back as a sort of 55, 60-year-old and think, crikey, why did I retire when I was still in the World Top 64, still on the tour? How many seasons have I given away by doing that? That's probably going to be my sort of dominant thought process when I make the decision. And if I do stay in the 64, I will be surprised if I did decide to retire, yeah. I know you had a reputation for collecting Q Sports memorabilia. Over oh yeah, the years. but you've moved around a lot. You lived in Berlin, I think, for a while, and Vienna as Vienna well. Before so that, yeah. Have you managed to keep the collection together with all that moving around? Do you know this will surprise you? I've got no interest now in billions and snooker memorabilia whatsoever. Um, the knowledge will always be there. I'm an expert on cues and and, and various billiards snooker related artifacts, uh, pre sort of 1960s, I suppose, um, sort of vintage and antique antiques uh, related to the game. But um, collecting-wise, no. I've always my main interests have always really been uh, antique horology. Well, I was going to say because it's not just snooker stuff, is it? You collect no. all kinds of An- things. antique musical boxes, antique uh, clocks. Yeah. I've got seven or eight of of, of them, um, and um, antiques generally. You know, I'm, I'm an expert in quite a few fields. I just. I, I love the field of antiques. I'd love to have gone into it had I not been a professional snooker player. So could that be the future as a sideline, maybe running an antiques shop somewhere? No, I wouldn't want to do that. If I can earn enough of being a, a, a commentator and a TV pundit, uh, the sort of work I've been doing for 20-odd years and do more of it and earn my my way in life from doing that, I, I won't want to do anything else. I should just want to enjoy the life that I have in Stroudham and my friends and and, um, and see them and just not have to worry about picking up a snooker queue or doing anything else. And um, Because it's so... It's been When you're a professional sportsman in any sport, if, if, especially if you're near the top of the tree and you're playing in every event and winning matches, and you're away from home an awfully long time. And it'd be lovely to sort of completely turn that on its head and do nothing almost except just the few tournaments that I do um, for Eurosport and the BBC and, and, and that. And uh, I love that sort of side of life. But, um, you know, I have a lot of free time then. I'd like to keep it that way. The lack of youngsters in the game is something that's an interesting subject to talk to about guys like you who came through at a time when the amateur game was really thriving. And it's interesting now to see all these years later, so many players of your sort of age still doing well on the circuit and still capable of winning matches. So how do you see that progressing in the years to come? Do you think your generation are going to be able to stay on the tour to 
a really late age, well into their 50s, maybe coming towards 60? Or can things change and can we see a new generation come through and really challenge you properly? That's an interesting question. I have to say, Mike, that nobody really coming through the game now impresses me. Um, A few Chinese players do. But if you consider the players that were coming through when I turned pro in 92, people like Mark Williams, John Higgins, Matthew Stevens, um, Ronnie, even myself, I suppose, if I dare put myself in such an exalted company, but none, none of the guys that are coming through now are in any way capable of beating sort of those guys. They don't, they, the, the, the guys that are coming through now, predominantly from, from Asia, and they've got a lot of uh, abilities, um, and and they've got good temperaments, fantastic techniques. They could make their mark in the game. But unfortunately, in places like Australia, where Neil came from, and, and, and China, for instance, where so many great players are coming through the ranks, and there's a lot of Chinese players on the tour now, there's no history of the game in Australia and China. So they, they learn the game when they come over to Britain and playing on the main tour against the British players, where snooker's had a, a history for so many decades and billiards before that. When I turned pro, I had a great amateur career, and I, I'd learn from playing great Welsh amateur players. You, you'd lose matches as an amateur by playing the wrong shots at the wrong time. You don't forget that. You learn. But, you know, it takes years to learn the game of snooker, and a lot of the matches I win against players from China or, or you know, Australia or wherever, I win those matches just because of my experience and know what shots to play at the right time and getting the best out of myself because probably I don't pop balls and score as heavily as, as somebody like Neil. I mean, if you take Neil, for instance, I may have beaten him more times he's beaten me and that should never be the case because he's an incredible player. But sometimes I feel he's guilty of playing the way that his opponent wants him to. He doesn't force his style of play on them. Um, there's a lot of psychology that goes on in snooker. And it does take a long time to learn everything. Um, you, you can you pick up on people's body language when you play a match and learn or, or think, you know, you know what's going on inside their head. You can tell by the shots they play with they're feeling confident and negative. All these things you learn, these little nuances, it takes a long time to learn them. But I think the future of the game will predominantly lie with the Chinese players. I think they're wonderful players. They've got great techniques. There's a lot of them coming through. A lot of them seem to have very, very good temperaments. Um, and I think the game, the future of snooker is, is, is a bright one because it's, um, it's, there are so many players now from so many different countries, which was ne- never the case in the early 90s. And before that, was it? You had a, a few Canadian players, which, funny enough, we don't have now, which um, that's a surprise. What about the future of Dominic Dale then? Can you be a tournament winner again or is it just about trying to get to a few quarters and semis here and there? It's incredible. You know, the experience I've picked up over the years that lies dormant in the back of your mind somewhere it really does come to the fore in crucial situations. If I can get a good run going and, and improve my confidence levels by winning a couple of good matches in a tournament, you just never know what's possible. And you, you always believe that somewhere down the line you can have a fantastic run in something. You always hope it's the World Championships or the UK, one of the very, very big tournaments. Um, and if you lose sight of that possibility, it may be time to consider retirement because if if you don't have that dream that something can happen for you, then maybe that belief will have finally been extinguished and it's time to pack it in. And when you add it all up, two ranking titles, as we've discussed, great moments at the Crucible, you've had lots of good results against top players over a very long period of time. It's been pretty good, hasn't it? Yeah, well, if I look at the game of snooker as a whole and all the players that have played it, there aren't many that win ranking events. 
um, let alone two of them have won the shootout and a few of the big tournaments um, as well. I'm glad I've left a mark on the game when I do retire, uh, whenever that will be. Um, that's something as a professional sportsman you always want to, to achieve is to leave your mark on the game and, and be remembered, I suppose. Um, and I feel I've probably achieved those, although I haven't been one of the game's greats, but very few people in any sports ever achieve that greatness. We seem to keep mentioning Matthew Stevens in this interview. This is the third time he's come up. And the reason I mention him is because Great a player. few weeks ago, yes, obviously very good player and former UK and Masters champion. But when he was on, I asked him to sign off by saying goodbye in Welsh. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do the same, but I know you love to sing, Dom. So sing us out of the podcast, whatever way you like. Maybe that Roy Orbison song you mentioned earlier to round things off. Well, that's an unusual song. That wouldn't really be up, but I'll... Uh, right, um... Or even the song you sang when you won in Shanghai. Oh, my way. Was yeah. it? Well, yeah. give, us, okay. give us a line or two. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. There you go. I won't ask you to do any more. That was magnificent. Dominic, always a pleasure, and thanks very much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast, Zhao Gudong. He'll be talking about what it was like to face Ding Junhui in a ranking final in China, the challenges of being one of the first Chinese players on the tour, and how hard it's been to get home during the COVID crisis. Now we change the schedule. <laughs> and um, before, we only can stay here about normally two, three months. The ma- minimum three months we have to back to China because we have tournament in China. Yeah, mm. But now we have to stay here whole season. If, if we back to China, we have to stay hotel 21 days now. So we only can do like after World Championship, we go by China one time. And when the season starts, we come by. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.